Hey, thanks for tuning into The Scoop. Before we get started with the episode, I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Blockset. They've been a big supporter of The Scoop and The Block for quite some time now. Blockset offers the industry's leading digital asset toolkit. With flexibility, security, and scalability in mind, enterprises and developers alike can get to market quickly and efficiently connect to multiple blockchains from one single source API. Go sign up for a free account at blockset.com and start building today. Stay tuned for more information later in the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. It's been a very exciting week in the cryptocurrency market. I, I woke up today and I actually thought it was Thursday instead of Wednesday. So that kind of speaks to the velocity at which we're moving right now. This week we had Coinbase announce that they were acquiring Bison Trails, a very interesting, fast-growing Crypto market making firm Wintermute announced a $20 million fundraise just a few minutes ago, literally before we turned down the mics. BlackRock, which folks who have been paying attention to the space for some time, not so much a big fan of the crypto market back in 2017. They just filed recently, and we just reported on the blockcrypto.com that they're looking to make an allocation to Bitcoin futures. And now, today on the scoop, we have Dan Moorhead, one of the crypto world's most profound, interesting, and strong defenders, bulwarks, if you will, on the show. And to be sure, anyone listening, um, you know, before maybe you jump down my throat about being biased because Pantera is an investor in our company, I'm going to try to ask some hard questions if Dan lets me, but we're very excited to have him on the show today. They recently put out a letter showing their fund performance, where they think the space is right now, why they think Bitcoin and Ethereum are kind of at the center of the market relative to 2017. And Dan, thank you. He was very patient. We had some technical difficulties on our end, but he's here. Thanks so much for joining us. Frank, thanks for having me. No, it's it's our pleasure. Um you know, we we are proud to report that the show has been doing record traffic or volume or whatever you want to say. We were at one point, I think, the eighth or seventh most popular podcast in Ireland. So as an investor, I, I hope you're at least to a degree proud. You're not Irish, are you? I My mother is 100% Irish American, so I'm half Irish American. And what is Moorhead? Is that like English, I, I guess? Uh, or English, Joe? Scottish. Yeah, so I'm uh, half English, Scottish, half Irish. Well, you know, maybe for this episode, I'll go by uh, Frank uh, O'Chapar instead of Chaparro. <laughs> but in any case, I want to start with just the market right now. We can start at a high level and then dig deep. You know, people who are crypto native who are listening in, they know what Pantera Capital is all about. They know how long you've been in the space and how you were really a pioneer for Bitcoin back when people were scoffing it, putting their nose up at it. But for people who are new, and there are plenty of people who are new, I mean, Larry Fink just came around. Walk us through what Pantera Capital is, your story, and where the firm is today. Sure. I started out actually as Goldman Sachs' first asset-backed securities trader, and now I'm trading asset-backed tokens. So it's a nice uh, symmetry there. 
I then went to work with Julian Robertson at Tiger Management, where I was the head of macro trading and the CFO. And the Tiger trading style was to look around the world for opportunistic trades that had incredible asymmetry, you know, where your downside was much smaller than your upside. And it was particularly from dislocations, you know, things that were really going to change the markets. And, you know, I've done some interesting trades over the years, Russian privatization or Argentine farmland or whatever. Uh, Tesla Motors, actually, in 2010 or 11. But when I got introduced to Bitcoin, uh, it took me a while to get my head around it. But I came to believe, and I, I believe in more strongly today, that it, it's going to be the most disruptive trade of my generation. And the risk reward is just so asymmetric. Obviously, it's very speculative. You could lose you know, a huge percentage of, of your investment in the space but it really can go up orders of magnitude. And there just aren't trades like that that come along. Why do you think right now the market is so much more focused on Bitcoin and to an extent Ethereum? You kind of outlined this in your most recent investor letter. I think it's something like 90% of the market capitalization is in those two cryptocurrencies. Why are we here at this point versus 2017 when everything seemed to be at least to an extent, about ICOs, many of which you guys invest in. Yeah. So, you know, Bitcoin and the whole crypto market is so disruptive that there are manias every two or three years. And the narrative changes. There was a bubble in 2013. There was a bubble in 2017. And heck, there might be a bubble at the end of 2021, right? So um, the narrative does change. And we did put in our, our latest investor letter, a couple of thoughts on how 2017 was different than the current rally. And that said, with all humility, you know, there uh, everyone always says this time's different. And ultimately, a lot of crises and bubbles and um, uh, events like this do look the same afterwards. But the big difference is in the middle of 2017, a couple of factors came together and everyone got excited about ICOs. And obviously, ICOs or, or crowd-funded token projects had been around since 2013. Uh, my partner, Joey Krug, did Augur in 2015. You know, So they, they were around, but a, a handful of things came together in the middle of 2017. Enormous amount of focus on it. And at the peak of the hype, we were getting 50 white papers a week. Mm. And that's really the crux of the issue is there aren't 50 genius ideas a week that come out. You know, There's only a handful each year. And we're basically back to what I consider normal. Uh, there are some people that if you talk about ICOs, they say, oh, yeah, didn't that happen in 2017? And it's, it's over. It's dead, right? It's not. It's, it's back to where it was. We're still doing really interesting projects, but we're still doing them at the same pace. You know, we did them many years ago, you know, only one every two, three, four months rather than, you know, 50 a week. I'm looking at the performance since the end of 2016. Bitcoin's up 3,600 percent. Could be more. Something I found fascinating about the letter was, you know, obviously the focus is now on Bitcoin and Ethereum, not so much some of these these other protocols or, or folks trying to crack the layer one egg. So does that make you feel like you kind of maybe regret dabbling with the ICOs? Are, are they maybe not meeting the expectations the firm sort of saw in 2017 and you know, do you think you might have been better off just, you know, putting some capital towards Bitcoin and Ethereum? Oh, it's a good question. And, and, you know, the markets do go in these cycles. And the reason we wrote our investor letter and pointed out 
that these days the non-Bitcoin and Ethereum tokens had gotten down to only 14% of the overall market. There's a couple of things we were trying to convey there. One is we're very bullish on Ethereum. I think it's going to easily hit 2000 this year. Uh, could go much, much higher. Um, but we're also very bullish on a lot of the projects built on top of Ethereum or similar ones like Polkadot, where we think they are going to outperform Bitcoin. And I know that gets people heated. We're very bullish on Bitcoin, but we're even more bullish on some of the other things. And our investments in early stage tokens um, have done very well. Like this year, they're already up 60% uh, when Bitcoin's only up 26%. You know, so it is a, it's an area that one needs to focus on, needs to invest in. But I would say the main thing would be to be selective. In 2017, basically any project was getting funded and we were investing probably one or 2% of the projects that were going live. And so you have to be very, very selective in the assets you pick in this early stage token market. And to an extent, I mean, tokens are making a comeback in a weird, interesting way. You know, in 2017, we saw the ICO boom. Today, we're maybe seeing the governance token boom. And in a way, there's some similarities and differences. How do you make bets in in the DeFi world and on that side of the market? Yeah, and I think that is the point that we're trying to make in the letters, that there's a time and a place for everything. And when the non-Bitcoin and Ethereum tokens got down to only 14% of the entire market, we think that's too low. And that if we look back three or four months from now, that number is going to be something like 25 or, or higher. So our funds that invest in early stage tokens and even the ones that invest in the liquid uh, tokens, they're much more heavily weighted to the DeFi space and to the tokens that are, are um, essentially not Bitcoin and Ethereum. And so we think 2021 is going to have great performance out of the, the smaller cap tokens, smart contract tokens, the DeFi tokens. One thing we've seen over the past year is folks from the Wall Street world, the traditional world of finance investors try to launch funds or, or start funds in the Bitcoin space. Anthony Scaramucci is a prime example in a way, kind of, you know, trying to ride the coattails of this rally, um, you know, as someone who's been in the market for so long, do you see these initiatives as something that's almost like, you know, kind of to a degree, you know, annoying, like, hey, like, we've been here since the beginning, we've been we've been pounding on this table for a while about why this is a good investment opportunity. How do you sort of keep the attention on Pantera, keep potential LPs interested in this new moment of, of fervor and and hype? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's two perspectives to take. Um, the first one is you asked uh, about how this rally is different than 2017. In 2017, there was a Bloomberg article about the 250 new hedge funds that had launched in the last month or something. <laughs> and I think that was really different. And that was basically... There were, you know, a bunch of people that were in the ETH crowd sale that then posted, you know, incredible eye-popping returns. Then they, over a few cycles, a lot of that kind of washes out and, and the investors that have been successful, you know, trading many different cycles, you know, kind of dominate in the end. And so that that was then. Now, you know, I mean, Anthony Scaramucci's, you know, built and sold a couple of big firms and, you know, worked on Wall Street for 40 years. So 
you know, it's a really a different animal. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's a validation of our industry, right? Like um, we launched the first crypto fund in the U.S. in 2013. And now we have very famous, you know, Wall Street people changing their careers to launch crypto funds. So that's validation. It's great. And our, our view is um, we think we're going to end up with a smaller slice of a much bigger pie. And bringing in firms like, you know, Blackstone and, and Skybridge and all these, you know, reputable firms, bringing credibility to our space is great. It's going to grow the pie much bigger. And so, you know, we're, we're in favor of it. And to be sure, I don't want to um, make it seem like I'm dunking on, on Anthony. He's coming on the podcast in February. So if you're listening to this, Anthony, this isn't a slight at you. I was just trying to raise this, this bigger question. Um, it's interesting on the flip side of, you know, wall street types coming into the space. Uh, you have a number of these crypto native funds, which, which you sort of were talking about the long tail of that shut down in the midst of this crazy year that we've seen, especially March where we had that, you know, big drawdown, adaptive capital, Tetris, or a few of the examples. I asked this actually to Olaf yesterday. We did a recording with Polychain. You guys have been around for almost a decade. How does a firm like Pantera have staying power in this market? What separates, not to gas you guys up too much, but to an extent, what separates the wheat from the chaff? Well, I guess part of the answer is we've actually been around for 17 years. So the firm has been here for a long time, we traded a lot of different things. Uh, crypto is definitely one of them. We traded successfully, but been through you know the 2008 financial crisis, been through 1987 stock market crash. You know, so in seeing all those different cycles, obviously it's not going to prevent us from ever you know making bad investments or having poor performance. But to some extent, we've kind of seen this movie before, and having survived you know six or eight big cycles over the last 35 years just gives us a bit of an edge in surviving, you know, the next one that's coming. And that's the fun thing about crypto is it does everything just on like 10x speed, you know, uh, it goes up 100x and it crashes down 90% and it does it again every three or four years. So having been through a lot of those cycles just gives us an edge over younger managers that, you know, really is their first time going through a couple of these wild events. When you hearken back on the year since 2017, what maybe have been some of the firm's biggest lessons or or investment mistakes? Yeah, I guess the thing we're trying to focus more on is, you know, really trading those big swings of Bitcoin dominance or the dominance of Bitcoin plus Ethereum versus everything else. You know, I think there's a lot more opportunity there than we've taken advantage of in the earlier years. And then as well, in hindsight, 2017 obviously was a bubble, but at the time we were probably drinking the Kool-Aid as much as everybody else. And um, this time around, we built a whole bunch of parameters that help us measure how close we are to an extreme in pricing. And you know, as an aside, we, we think we're kind of right in the middle of the, the price range right now. We don't think we're at any kind of dangerous bubble level, but that's the main thing is we're trying to always learn from each cycle. And you know, we've seen the 2013 cycle, seen the 2017 cycle and you know we just want to trade this next one well can you share some of those parameters yeah you know there's a there's a handful of fundamental valuation metrics and one of the easiest ones one of the ones we've tweeted about a bit is although 
you know, obviously Bitcoin and the rest of the cryptos have had an amazing run over the last nine months. They're still below their long-term trend line. It really is pretty spectacular. But if you graph the price of Bitcoin, and, you know, Bitcoin's a good proxy for the whole cryptocurrency industry, and you do it in a log scale, so you take out the kind of crazy exponential growth that, that Bitcoin's done, it's actually been pretty consistent. It, it grows on a compound annual growth rate of 213% a year. And yeah, there have been some times when it gets way ahead of itself. And then there's been some, some there's been five bear markets, uh, many of which are 80 to 90% bear markets. But when you really look at it on, on that basis, we're still below that trend line. And that gives me some comfort that we're not at a, uh, you know, kind of a overvalued level. Another metric would be, the previous two halvings had massive impacts on the price of Bitcoin. And if you scale those halvings, this is a much bigger conversation if you want to get into it. But if you scale it all down uh, to the size of this halving relative to the stock of Bitcoin outstanding, it would imply Bitcoin peaking this August at $115,000 per Bitcoin. And we wrote that in our April investor letter when Bitcoin was at 80 something, 8,000 something. And it obviously sounded ludicrous. And we actually put out a schedule of, you know, what price Bitcoin would be at the middle of each of the months, you know, between uh, last April and, and this coming August. And it had Bitcoin being at 38000 on January 15th. It's pretty good, right? It's spot on that page. So, you, you, I mean, really driving home the point you wrote in the letter, havings have a huge impact, huge being in awe capital letters. But I guess the question that I have is, how do we know for sure? I guess we don't necessarily, but I think a lot of people might look at the performance we've seen in Bitcoin and ascribe it to the sort of backdrop we have with this global economic and financial crisis in, in COVID-19. How do we know this is tied to this having stock to flow projection? Well, Frank, that's the reason you should be long is it's going up because of about eight big things that are all happening at the same time. So uh, the halving is very important, but you're, you're right. The global macro situation is just literally off the charts. In June, the U.S. started printing more money in a single month than it did in the first 200 years of this country's existence. And when you print that much money, it has to have an impact on the valuation of things that cannot be quantitatively eased. The other way to say it is it has to debase the value of the paper money you used to have if they're just printing more pieces of the same stuff. So whichever way you want to look at it, the value of gold or bitcoins going up or the value of paper money is going down, it's the same thing. And, and uh, you know, that really is one of the major stories, not just for the last nine months, but, you know, unfortunately, I think for the next couple of years. Over the past 12 months, e even beyond, I mean, I want to shift over to the sort of portfolio that you guys have. The past 12 months have been an interesting ride for so many different companies. And then obviously, as a news person covering those companies, we're looking at, you know, what's happened on the regulatory side with Ripple, Coinbase's upcoming potential IPO. Circle going from this sort of battered trading firm to this leading force in the stablecoin world. FTX, I mean, making so many moves. I mean, the list really goes on. And then there's been some, you know, more difficult stories, right? Harvard necessarily didn't pan out the way that some folks did. Arisex has had some trouble. 
creating a, a large sizable market, but there was a ton of stuff happening throughout the industry. And you kind of similar to us have a seat right at the table. What's been exciting to you and, and maybe what um, didn't necessarily uh, shape up in the way that you thought it would? Yeah, uh, we're actually invested in most of the companies you mentioned there. So we have had a, a 50 yard line seat for a lot of the the stuff that's going on, you know, both the good stuff and the stuff that hasn't worked uh, well. You know, obviously the entities that are doing business with retail are booming. The uh, DeFi space is booming. And, you know, so we've seen a lot of, of action in, in those two uh, areas. And, you know, we've, we've just had one of our portfolio companies backed merge into a, a SPAC, which is taking it public. Coinbase has filed their IPO. Yeah, I think over the next couple of uh, quarters, you're going to have a handful more cryptocurrency companies announce their intentions to go public. And then probably over the next two years, you're going to start seeing either companies go public or legacy finance firms buying companies in the space. So, you know, although you've mentioned that it's been fun covering the news for the last three or four years, I think it's time to buckle in. It's going to be even more fascinating in the next couple of years. What do you think will happen as a result of Coinbase going public? Yeah, I, I think that just brings in a, just a huge new community of people into the crypto space. Um, you know, anytime you have a new asset class being created, every kind of moment that credentializes it, you know, there's been some regulatory ones like, you know, when the IRS ruled on crypto or in 2013 and the OCC last year, you know, the CFTC allowed futures to happen. All those things are, they're important. They all just kind of build the credibility of this new asset class. But obviously, uh, you know, big brand like Coinbase going public just magnifies that into, you know, such a uh, broad set of, of investors that I think it'll just bring more people to focus on the space. And as you know, well, when people actually spend some time and really read up on the space, they almost always end up buying something. You know, it's it's got a really, really high rate of engagement. So the essentially, the more people you induce to focus on the blockchain ecosystem, you know, the more that are going to ultimately get invested in it and start using it. One of the potential impacts, obviously, when you have a firm of the size of Coinbase now with a liquid currency for acquisition vis-a-vis -vis their publicly traded shares is M&A activity. So, you know, if you sort of see those dominoes fall, maybe the Bison Trails Coinbase deal was the first example, um, that could then move their competitors to try to make similar acquisitions. When you look across your portfolio, to what degree do you see many of them looking for their exits now that the market's kind of popping off and, and one of the largest you know faces of the market is now about to go public? Yeah, I think that pace will pick up. We've had probably 15 or 20 exits over the years in our portfolios. But I, I think, you know, with Coinbase going public, with back being acquired via a SPAC, uh, I, you know, I think the pace is going to increase rapidly. And, you know, all industries consolidate, right? There used to be 140 stagecoach companies, and now we have one Wells Fargo, right? Uh, we're going to have that. There's so many exchanges out there. There's so many other types of service providers like custodians and, and all these things uh, will ultimately get rolled up into a handful of very you know, big, reputable versions of those verticals. 
What would be like your dream M&A deal or, or the one that you think would be the most interesting? Oh, um, you know, I do think the exchange space is a good example. You know, it's fractured. It's uh, very regional. You know, ultimately, uh, exchangeable combined because liquidity does pool. So I, I think you're going to see a lot of exchanges uh, get rolled up. Same thing, cross-border money movement. Over the years, we've invested in probably, you know, 15 or so companies that use blockchain, predominantly Bitcoin, to move money across borders. But it's always very regional, you know, like coins.ph in the Philippines or, you know, Bitpagos down in Latin America or, or Bitpesa in Africa. You know, so you have all these companies and they're doing a great job regionally, but ultimately to provide more value to their community you know, it'd be better if they had a global product offering. So I think you're going to see a lot of roll-ups in that space over the next few years. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow The Block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014 and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. One question that's kind of top of mind for folks in the industry is this notion of there being a a Bitcoin shortage. We saw it in the news of eToro sort of lacking a degree of Bitcoin or, or potentially having to lock up buying because of a lack of Bitcoin. You have many different new participants entering the market buying very big sizable chunks of Bitcoin from Mass Mutual to, of course, our friends over at MicroStrategy. So how does this sort of impact the market and, and its sort of trajectory for 2021? Yeah, a while ago I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, a, a Tiger Cub TMT investor, and he said, hey, we don't trade Bitcoin because there's no cash flows to discount. And my answer was like, well, there's no cash flows to the euro and everyone trades that. It's, it's no big deal. People use fundamentals to, to decide how much demand there will be for a currency. And that's the same with, with Bitcoin. Is It's just a supply and demand thing. And we put a very stylized supply and demand graph uh, in our investor letter and on Twitter a few months ago. But it really is, I think, the way you should think about it is if you have a supply line that's pretty vertical, you know, there's a lot of people that own Bitcoin for more kind of political philosophy reasons rather than just speculative reasons. So they don't really care what the price is. They're not going to sell it. Uh, so it takes a much, much higher price to induce people to sell it. And then you have a demand line that's pretty flat, you know, like people seem to buy Bitcoin kind of regardless of, of what the price is. So if you have those curves like that, and then you have a shock like the having where you're cutting in half the number of Bitcoin that are issued, you know, moves the supply curve way to the left. And then we've had uh, some pretty big demand shocks, PayPal being the, you know, the easiest one to talk about. They brought 300 million new people into the uh, one click buy Bitcoin world. <laughs> and that's really different than 2017, where you had to take a selfie 
with your passport and you had to sit there and wait for the exchange to like verify your AML KYC stuff. And that took like a week to, to happen. So when you have the demand curve shift way up with all these MicroStrategy, uh, Square, PayPal type uh, buyers coming in and then the supply get literally cut in half, it does create a shortage. And and we're seeing that. We, we have one entity, PayPal, buying more than 100% of all of the newly issued Bitcoins. So where are you going to get the rest, right? That's where the inelastic supply thing comes in. You, you know, if you have entities that are buying up more than 100% of all the newly created Bitcoin, you, you have to have a higher price to induce people to sell out of their existing stock. And I think that's what you've seen over the last nine months is you've had a lot of new buyers come in, even, you know, entities like Mass Mutual and Paul Tudor Jones putting 2% of his funds in it, uh, Stan Druck and Miller, you know, Bill Miller, all these people, if they're all buying, a, you know, a couple percent of their net worth or a couple percent of their AUM into Bitcoin, you can't do it at the same price. You have to do it at a higher price. And that's what's driving the price up. You're you're talking about a lot of the institutional demand that you know, we, we cover on a seemingly weekly basis these big names from Drunken Miller to Paul Tudor Jones and beyond. How are you guys accommodating for this newfound interest? Does it seem like an appropriate time to launch new funds, to bring on new capital, or to sort of take in new capital, I should say? How are you taking advantage of this to an extent? So we, we've always believed that the institutions will ultimately be the ones that are going to drive the market. And so uh, even in 2013, set up our first vehicle as a hedge fund with Ernst & Young auditing, the first crypto thing in the world, just to make sure it was just what institutions would want. And um, there have been some institutional investors the whole time, but uh, we're really seeing an inflection point with, with more coming into the markets you know, over the last couple of months, you know, we've had a ton of inbound calls from endowments and others that are trying to get exposure to the space. So I think the, the reality is they're looking for managers that manage, you know, multi-asset funds, sometimes both tokens and venture. And they ultimately want that all to be, you know, within a handful of managers, just like they do in any other space. They, they have a couple of managers they go to and let those managers allocate, in this case, between tokens and venture. And then within tokens, you know, to the mega caps like uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum versus the the smaller, you know, smart contract uh, tokens out there. So are you guys open and have you seen the AUM swell as a result of this interest? We have. Uh, many of our hedge funds are always open. Our Bitcoin fund is daily liquidity, so people can come in any day. And then our, our two hedge funds are monthly. So at the end of every calendar month, people can come in. We don't have a venture fund that's open. We finished raising our $200 million venture fund three uh, a while ago, and so it's closed. But we do anticipate offering a new fund uh, sometime in the next few months that's much more tailored towards you know, multi-asset class, uh, institutional investor type investors. So what's the investor profile of the folks who might invest in that? And then what type of opportunities would you be looking for in that specific fund? Is it Bitcoin infrastructure specific, Bitcoin specific, or maybe DeFi? Yes, actually the opposite is our current product mix is we have four funds. Each one's very specific and any one asset can only go in one of the funds. So they're essentially mutually exclusive. And we are going to be creating a fund that 
covers the entire blockchain space, both tokens and venture. And so it'll run the gamut on the venture side in terms of what types of companies you'd be most interested in. Yeah, we've been pretty opportunistic in investing over the last eight years. Uh, there's been a couple spaces like mining that we just don't do because we don't believe we have an edge there. Uh, with those few exceptions, uh, and there's actually only two exceptions, we've invested in everything else uh, within the blockchain ecosystem. So uh, each fund that we've done in the past has, has kind of had like a cap, uh, snapshot of an era. It's kind of like a geological strata. You know, it's taking a, a, a re recording of what was popular. Like our first fund was all about custody companies like Zappo and exchanges like Bitstamp and Seed Investor and Ripple. You know, so the things that were happening in 2013-14 and then our second fund was mainly about cross-border money movement using Bitcoin because that was what was happening in 2015 and 16 and 17. And then our, our current fund that we're investing in, you know, has, you know, companies like BAC that are doing, you know, much more institutional grade types of things. And, and so, you know, it, it's almost hard to even forecast what this fund that we're going to be investing in 2022 and 2023 will actually look like because that's what's so interesting about this space is it's always evolving. I feel like a degree of it has to be in this in the DeFi world. Is that something you guys are more interested in? Yeah, we are. And, you know, we've invested in, you know, half a dozen DeFi projects over the last three or four years. You know, recently we've been focused on projects like uh, One Inch, an exchange that's, you know, aggregating DEXs, Akala, Polkadot, you know, things that are uh, really coming on right now that are, you know, quite exciting. Mm -hmm. So what are the opportunities in, in DeFi that the firm sees? Is it strictly limited to Ethereum? Are there opp opportunities outside of Ethereum for the DeFi ecosystem to form? What's your view on that? Yeah, I mean, obviously a massive amount of it is is already formed around Ethereum, but there's some forming around Polkadot. It's early, but a nice community and a set of projects are starting to form there, like Akala and Moonbeam. Things are being built on top of them. Uh, SushiSwap is looking at Moonbeam as an example. So, you know, we're seeing it broaden out. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. One of the things that's different since we've kind of talked about the parallels and the differences between this rally in 2017, the DEXs have really kind of showed up to an extent. I mean, we're seeing projects like Uniswap do billion dollars worth of volumes a day, right? And, and you know, kind of really showing up not only the centralized exchanges, but even some of the institutional plays that we saw coming to the market um, maybe in 2018. What do you think might, maybe is driving that? Yeah, it's, it's a, I, I'm so glad you brought up DEXs and Uniswap. I don't know why they aren't bigger news. You know, there are many days Uniswap does more volume than Coinbase. And for those of us that have been, you know, talking about and evangelizing for decentralized economy for a long time, that's just wild. I think it's, it's great. The DEX volumes went from sub a billion, gosh, nine months ago, you know, to 25 billion now. So, you know, that to me, that's a huge story. And, and uh, the block's got to get on it, make sure everyone out there knows that. We're definitely trying. So I guess, you know, one of the things that you've been thinking about, and, and we've talked about in this conversation, whether this is being institutionally driven or retail driven, you know, that the paradigm has kind of shift for 
the institutional side, and they seem to be pretty much on board on the whole, at least relative to 2017. But what about retail activity? Do you think that's still there? Is that important? And maybe how is that shaping the dynamic of this current market? Well, it is really different because in 2017, it was mainly a retail-driven uh, thing. And especially with respect to some of these new projects in the ICO market, you know, not enough transparency, not enough information was out there. So, so you know, people were buying things that ultimately they didn't really want to hang on to. And that that's probably why the market went up higher than it should have and then probably down more than it should have. Here you're having, you know, very serious institutional investors, you know, like some of these companies we were talking about or some of the legendary macro investors. You know, obviously they've done, you know, five years worth of work in coming up with whether to pull the trigger on getting into blockchain and then they put their brand and their reputation behind it they're not going to punch out you know in in two or three months uh so you know i think it it brings much more sticky investors into the space and when you really do start talking about moving the needle on institutional investors we're still sub one percent of their assets you know we're talking tens of basis points so we're really at the very beginning of a huge kind of glacial shift and you know, I don't think they're going to, you know, back out quickly. And then as the rest of their peers start coming in and coming in in more meaningful size, you know, it really is going to be a huge impetus to the market. Not only has the makeup of the market changed to a degree going from retail to maybe more institution focused, but the the deal structures have also changed, right? I mean, if you hearken back in 2017, a lot of these were quote unquote token deals. And now we're kind of seeing maybe shifts in how these deals are structured from, you know, token to equity to then maybe now again, we're, we're seeing a comeback to a degree in, in token transactions for venture investments. I also remember like back in 2017, and, and you definitely remember this as well, and, and many of our listeners you know, VC was thought of as something that would be usurped and shaken by this ICO movement that really hasn't come to play. But with all that sort of laid out, I'd be curious to get your take on just like how, you know, the VC landscape in crypto and beyond has changed as a result of new market dynamics. And how is that shaping maybe the way that Pantera is positioning itself today? Yeah, you know, I think there was, you know, a bit of uh, kind of extreme hype about, you know, these some of these token projects early in 2017. And at the time, you know, a lot of them really didn't have any, you know, code built or community built or, or any product out there. And it's, you know, that, that puts an enormous amount of risk on the investor. Obviously, that uh, produces some examples of things, you know, like Filecoin or Polkadot or whatever that, that ultimately will launch and will have use case and will have very high returns but there are a few of those so now we're seeing projects get a lot further along before they raise substantial amounts of capital and, and that essentially just reduces the risk uh because you you know if, if the project's going to be able to uh, get the code working you know whether you're going to be able to build a community makes sense so how do you i guess more broadly more high level how has crypto this ethos and mentality that shaped the market in 2017, really, this idea that, you know, we're going to democratize access to many of these deals. How is that going to, and how has that continued to shape 
venture investing and investing more broadly? Well, I think um, everyone has realized that, at least within the United States, that uh, there really isn't kind of that, quote, democratization of finance in the offering of things that might look like securities. So uh, on a practical level, from essentially mid-2018 on, everyone's acted like tokens were de facto security. So most of them wouldn't uh, be released to their investors for at least a year. Uh, they wouldn't go on exchanges until they were functional. You know, so on a practical level, people have been acting like uh, most tokens were securities since then. And so that has changed the markets quite a bit. You know, things have to be existing. They have to have code that works. They have to a product that, that works before they distribute to their investors and before their investors are allowed to sell them on the exchanges. Are you seeing less of that? Are you seeing less deals come to Pantera that are kind of, you know, this pie in the sky dream that, you know, is is just a white paper or is some of that maybe seeping into DeFi and it's kind of the same story just three years later? No, it definitely has changed. You know, in, in 2017, there were a lot of projects that were literally a couple of developers and a piece of paper that were raising tons of money. And, and these days, you know, most of the projects that we're investing in, you know, they really have done quite a bit of work, you know, gotten a lot closer to something actually functional. Well, this has been a wide ranging conversation. I feel like we touched so many bases. I want to kind of close the convo, the podcast show out with some of maybe your predictions for the upcoming year. Where is Pantera sitting as a con- as a contrarian? Where is Dan Moorhead sitting as a contrarian? And, you know, what do you expect to play out? Well, yeah, it's an easy way to set oneself apart is to, you know, use price as kind of a, a distillation of all the things you're expecting. I think the global macro stimulus that's coming into the market is really going to push up the markets much more than most people expect. And, um, you know, I think the rally would be stronger than uh, a lot of people are talking about. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's 100% certainty we're going to hit that 115,000 uh, forecast we put in our April letter, but I think it's a good chance we do. And um, I think it's highly likely we're way higher at the end of this year than we are today. So we're probably more bullish than uh, most people, or at least people who are willing to put it in print. And then relative to uh, everyone where we're contrarian is we're much more bullish on Ethereum. And then kind of a subcomponent of that is we're even more bullish on the smaller, often DeFi projects that are built on top of that. And um, the non-Bitcoin, non-Ethereum market share bottomed at 14% when we wrote our last investor letter. My contrarian bet will be that'll be 25 to 30% in 12 months time. You put in print the degree to which you're bullish on Bitcoin and it having far more upside in its price. How are you putting that into action in terms of your funds and and the firm's investment strategy? Have you guys put more weight into Bitcoin? Um, how, how is that being, how can that be quantified? Yeah, so we actually do. We have a fund called a digital asset fund that trades all the liquid tokens. Um, and in that fund, we're limit long, essentially, because we think the markets are, are going to go way up. But since we think Ethereum and DeFi smart contracts are going to outperform Bitcoin, we're essentially massively underweight Bitcoin in our digital asset fund. 
and uh, much more heavily weighted Ethereum and uh, the smaller projects in the space. I guess we can focus on that as a way to close the episode. We talked a lot about Bitcoin, um, so throwing a bone to the ETH heads out there. What are some of the tailwinds that are going to be playing into the Ethereum story? And how maybe do we have a better narrative around Ethereum? Because I feel like we understand that there's digital gold. We understand this inflation narrative, Bitcoin, for at least some of the more mainstream investors doesn't have as clear of a narrative. Yeah, I, Frank, I think you nailed it. Is digital gold. Like, how hard is that to get to, you know, pitch somebody? Those legendary macro investors, uh, Stan Drucker Miller and Paul Jones and Bill Miller, all three of them referenced gold when they talked about why they bought Bitcoin. So that connection is very easy to make. They're printing a, an incredible amount of paper money. That paper money has to inflate the price of non-quantitatively easable things like gold and Bitcoin. So Bitcoin goes up. When you start getting into smart contracts and programmable money and all that stuff, you know, uh, institutional investors, sometimes their eyes glaze over because they don't really follow where you're going. What's really going to drive that is when people actually start to understand what DeFi is, when they see how much money is being borrowed and lent in these decentralized banks, essentially, when they see uh, DEXs like Uniswap, but that literally just started six months ago. So it's going to take a couple of years for that, for the kind of the, the general investing community to understand it. But ultimately, that's what's going to get people excited about Ethereum and other non-Bitcoin projects is when they see the real use cases that are something other than digital gold or, or cross-border money movement. And we shall see. We've got a lot to keep our eye on for the next, well, now 11 months. I guess I, I wonder, um, you know, the fact that we have... Democratic president, Democratic Senate, Democratic House. We, we've seen research from Goldman come in that this is going to ramp up inflation as a result or potentially ramp up inflation as a result of an increase in stimulus from this sort of Democratic controlled government could also increase rates. So wh what impact might that have on, on this Bitcoin story? Maybe we can squeeze this in before we sign off. Yeah, so obviously a huge uh, storyline. I think it's highly likely to be very positive for the price of cryptocurrencies. The uh, incoming Congress and then being aligned in their party with the president, they've already talked about a stimulus package that uh, I think they said had to be, uh, they had some adjective like huge or massive, 1.9 trillion, you know, a starting number. Those are just staggering amounts of money. Senator Dirksen said in uh, the 60s, he said a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon it starts to add up to real money. A trillion here, a trillion there. I mean, the GDP of the United States is only 18 trillion, right? These are huge numbers. The U.S. deficit is averaging bigger than it did in World War II when we were fighting fascism. So, um, you know, these are just massive, massive numbers. And um, they almost certainly have to have an impact on the price of things like cryptocurrency. Uh, Janet Yellen, when she was had stepped down from the Fed, said that the U.S. Fed is much more constrained than other central banks in the world and that we might want to look at using printed money to buy equities and things like that. And that reminds me of the time... I was uh, managing some trading businesses in Japan right after their crash in the early 90s. 
And Japan invented almost all the policies we're talking about now. They invented quantitative easing. They invented ZERP, zero interest rate policy. Uh, they also used public funds to buy equities. And the value of their currency plummeted over the next 20 years. And the trade-weighted U.S. dollar has been plummeting for nine months. I think if all these policies that are being discussed are followed through with, they might have fantastic political benefits. They might have fantastic humanitarian benefits. All that I'm going to leave to other people to figure out. I only get paid to trade currencies in the crypto space. I think they're going to make the price of crypto go way up. And be bad for greenbacks. Yeah, it's it's got to debase the value of the dollar relative to other things like even the S&P 500, but, you know, much more directly gold, Bitcoin, Ethereum. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting time to be a macro trader, that's for sure. And we appreciate having those types of folks on the show. Dan Moorhead, co-founder, CEO of Pantera Capital. Appreciate your time, your insights. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. It's been a fun conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Scoop. If you like the episode, follow us on Twitter at The Scoop Pod for updates about future episodes and show highlights from previous episodes. If you really like this episode, or even if you hated it, please let us know and leave a review where you prefer to listen to podcasts. But, and this is the most important thing, folks, if you like this show, please share it. Share it with your friends, your colleagues, and beyond, and let us know what you want to hear in the future from future guests. We're here to serve you, the audience. Follow us on Twitter, download the episode, share the episode, and we'll hear from you next time.